Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hello, thank you for joining me this Wednesday, March 1st. March 1st! We're, um... We're coming up on daylight savings time again. So we don't have to wait till uh, March 14th to uh, figure out who's going to be in the runoff on April 4th to be the next mayor of the city of Chicago. It is Paul Vallis and Brandon Johnson. Mayor Lori Lightfoot came in third. She probably, when all is said and done, Done. She will probably be within that 5% where a candidate ha- can demand a recount, but she is not doing that. She is uh, stepping away and uh, looking for the next thing. We were a little concerned because there were, were, probably still are, uh, some 100,000 mail-in ballots that hadn't been tallied yet, but all night long, As the precincts closed, the positions of the nine candidates running for mayor were at least the top four positions were steady. Paul Vallis was always in the lead. Brandon Johnson was always second. Mayor Lori Lightfoot was third. Congressman Chewy Garcia was fourth. Whether that was 30 percent of the vote in, 50 percent of the vote in, 70% of the vote in, and then finally it got to be 80 and 90% of the precincts reporting. And while the numbers changed and the percentages tweaked a little, that order held throughout the evening. So we don't have to wait till today for a decision. We don't have to wait for for two weeks, which was... which was the fear in some quarters that it would be so close, at least as far as the number two spot, that it would be so close that we would not know for a long time. Phew. I mean, I'm sure Mayor Lightfoot, having seen the outcome, would now be willing to wait two weeks to get a different verdict, but that's the way it stacks up. You know, it's. Um, I was looking over the... Report that the Board of Education, Board of Education, Board of Elections put out on this as um, all the precincts closed. And what's really interesting is there are a surprising number of aldermanic races that are also going to be going to runoff 43rd, 45th, 46th, 48th. Um, because in a lot of these Wards. I mean, not the second ward where Brian Hopkins ran unopposed, not the third ward where Pat Dowell ran unopposed. But in a lot of these wards, it looks like we are headed toward a runoff. In the first ward, we'll have to see what the tally is when the mail-in ballots are counted, because, you know, it takes 50 percent plus one to be declared the winner. In the first ward, the incumbent alder, Daniel Laspada, when the polls closed and everything was tallied, he had 49.22% of the vote. Now, that's one race where we could see the prospect of a runoff disappear before our eyes. 
You know, in in the fourth ward, Lamont Robinson had 46.17% of the vote. So some of these might shift, but some of the some of these wards, like let's take a look at the sixth ward. It is um it's pretty clear that's headed toward a runoff. Richard Wooten with a, a hair under twenty three percent of the vote, William Hall with about twenty four percent of the vote. Nobody getting that fifty uh, percent. Some um Michelle Harris faced a couple of challengers in the 8th Ward, but she hung on to her seat with 70% of the vote. You know, there are a lot of places where we are not going to be seeing a runoff, but there are a surprising, to me, shocking um, number of, of aldermanic races that will be back on the ballot on April 4th. Uh, Raymond uh, Lopez in the 15th Ward was facing two challengers, but he managed to uh, walk away last night with a uh, little over 64% of the vote. So he has hung on to his seat in the 15th ward. Um, going to be a lot of these races. And um, in the weeks to come, we will be focusing on the mayoral runoff between Paul Vallis and Brandon Johnson and the aldermanic races that are... Um, that are really close. You know, one of the races that I know, um, <laughs> because she lives in the 45th Ward, um, that Patty was paying attention to was uh, the aldermanic race for the 45th Ward. That is the ward that is currently led by the very controversial Jim Gardner. Um, he is now going to be facing a runoff. The endorsed candidate, the Chicago Tribune endorsed candidate against him, Megan Mathias. She is the uh, number two vote getter in the 45th Ward. Uh, Jim Gardner getting 48.8%. Looks like he is headed to a runoff with Megan Mathias. That's going to be a real interesting, that's going to be a real interesting runoff. Mr. Gardner, very conservative. Um, Megan Mathias, less so. And most of the people running against uh, James Saw, uh, Susanna Ernst, running against Jim Gardner would, I think, also identify themselves as being a little more liberal than him. So it's possible that the votes that went to the other, uh, there were six people in that race. Megan and Jim are going to be in the runoff. And the four other candidates, if their votes go over to Megan Mathias. It's um it's gonna be a horse race there. We are gonna bring you all that conversation, all the candidates, all of what's at stake now coming up on April fourth. We will over the next few weeks be educating you, informing you, bringing you up to speed on who they are, how they're the same, how they're different, what they want to accomplish. If they're already an incumbent, why they want to stick around? We will uh, get to all of that news. But right now, let's take a look back at last night. We had Jerry Riles at um, Mayor Lightfoot's campaign headquarters. And uh, I said something about how when she came out to make her concession speech, she seemed disappointed and sad. 
And Jerry said that he thinks she was more than sad. He thinks that she was really um, heartbroken over this. He said that when she came out, it appeared to him that she'd been that she'd been crying. She was known for better or for worse for much of her tenure as mayor as somebody who was combative, sometimes seemingly unnecessarily so. But she was not combative when she came out to make a concession speech last night. It seemed to be heartfelt, and it, um, it was positive, as positive as concession speeches can be, since basically the candidate is there to tell you how disappointed they are and how bad they feel at letting all of their supporters down. But I thought Mayor Lightfoot, when she came out, she uh, she really tried to strike a note of forward-looking, a note of thanks to those who supported her, a positive message, especially a positive message for young people when she uh, gave her concession speech. Listen to just a snippet of it right here. Four years ago, I looked into the camera and spoke directly to young people of color who look like me and to every kid who felt like I did um, when I grew up. And I'm going to do that again tonight. I told you back then that anything is possible with hard work. And I want you to know that no matter what happens along the way, you should always believe that because it's true. Believe that you can bring about change. Believe that uh, you matter. And believe that you can love who you want to love and do what you want to do and be who you want to be. You will not be defined by how um, you fall. You will be defined by how hard you work and how much you do good for other people. Obviously, we didn't win the election today, but I stand here with my head held high and a heart full of gratitude. The spot, the number two spot, since it was pretty obvious to most people that Paul Vallis was definitely going to get into a runoff, the big question was, who's going to be the number two spot? Lori Lightfoot, Brandon Johnson, Congressman Garcia, in most of... All the polls I saw, they were neck and neck. For weeks now, they've been neck and neck. Personally, based on the people I've spoken with and the sense I've gotten, I really think in these last couple of weeks, Brandon Johnson, his campaign really caught fire. But it was still, according to all the poll watchers, it was still potentially a horse race. So do I think when I spoke to Lori Lightfoot yesterday as she was out and about campaigning, do I think that she believed she still had a chance? I do. I really do. I mean, everybody counted her out. Remember the last time she ran for mayor, the field started, I think, at 14 people. And she wasn't getting a lot of traction until all of a sudden she did. In the last weeks, her campaign caught fire, much like Brandon Johnson's did. 
And she's a fighter and she knows how to campaign and she's an effective campaigner. However abrasive she might have been running city council or in her or in her meetings, she knows how to campaign. She knows how to communicate with people and put her message and her work in the most positive light. She's really good at that. And so, yeah, I believe that she really going into the results last night, I think she thought she had a real shot to go up against Paul Vallis. That is not how the votes went. We are going to share a little bit a bit more about what was said last night, some of what was said today on these campaigns when we come right back after this. Take Jonas Pazito, live, local, and progressive with you on the go by using the TuneIn app on your phone. Just search for WCPT 820. This is Barry Moltz with the Small Business Radio Show. And like you, I've had a lot of businesses over the last 25 years. First, I went out of business. Then I got kicked out by my two partners. Then I sold my last business and I was able to pay back the bank the $1.3 million I owed them. And funny enough, my wife tells me I got her back just about the same time. Join me Saturday mornings at 9 a.m. right here on WCPT 820, where I show you how to get your small business unstuck, grow the company you've always wanted, and finally make the money that you deserve. You're listening to WCPT 820, because facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. As I said a minute ago, we do not have to wait till this morning or tomorrow or a week from now to find out who is going to be on the ballot in the mayoral runoff April 4th. Got your calendar out? Did you mark April 4th? Good. Good to know. Uh, there will be other uh, elections on April 4th. That's also the day that Wisconsin is going to decide what their Supreme Court is going to look like. Go uh, Janet Protasewicz. Please donate to her. Help her out. Write some postcards. We need her to lead Wisconsin into a more humane direction. And uh, here in Chicago, there will be various alder races that are in runoffs and the two mayoral contestants. Paul Vallis, uh, the front runner last night, all night long, he went out. He went out big. He went out early and he stayed out in front. And um, it was interesting because in his acceptance speech that he was indeed going to be in the runoff, I was impressed that he offered an olive branch. He said that it wasn't going to be, he's smart enough to know he can't do it alone, and he was going to call on people to step up and help out, which I think, you know, usually for this kind of a concession speech, you know, you expect somebody to say, you know, I want to thank all my supporters. Oh, we worked really hard. You know, we made this happen. We're the greatest. We're going to be the greatest. We've always been the greatest. <clears throat> but I was pleasantly surprised when Mr. Vallis took the stage and said, basically, I'm thrilled to be here, but I can't do it alone. Listen to this. I've had success because I've always had the good sense to listen to the community 
to empower the community and draw my leadership from the community. Public safety is the fundamental right of every American. It is a civil right. And it is the principal responsibility of government. And we will have a safe Chicago. We will make Chicago the safest city in America. And it will not only come from providing the police with the resources and the support they need, but from building the bond between the police department and the community. So we have true community policing in the greatest sense of the word. Today at uh, 1230, Mr. Vallis appeared at the Thompson Center for a media availability. Uh, Here's a little bit of what he had to say just a few hours ago. I'm going to continue to campaign. You know, I think this is like our, our 40th day of me campaigning every day, every single day. I mean, literally morning through the evening. You know, I shouldn't complain. My wife had to go back to, to midnight uh, last night after the event, you know. And, uh, of course, Paulie had to go back to the firehouse. And, so, and, and my other son's, I think, on his 10th straight day of working uh, in his uh, role as a police officer. So I'm I'm certainly not complaining about the work effort. And uh, it's what I said when I um, was talking to Jerry Riles last night, because he said, even though Mayor Lightfoot was visibly sad, there was also there also seemed to be a little bit of relief. And whatever you say about working in politics, being a representative, state senator, uh, older person, If you have never campaigned, and I know Patty talks about this, having campaigned herself, it is it is really all consuming. You you eat it, you breathe it, you live it 24, 7, 7 days a week. You can't if you really want to have a shot at elected office, you you just can't leave a stone unturned. And uh, it's a wonderful place to be. Now, Brandon Johnson, preacher's son, uh, last night gave a really exuberant speech to his supporters. It was uh, it was it was classic Brandon Johnson. Who was clearly thrilled to have bested the mayor and Chewy Garcia to be able to go up against Paul Vallis. You know, of all nine candidates, we were we were talking about this a little bit last night. I don't think if you looked at the whole pool of nine candidates and you said, we want the two who are just most diametrically opposed, just complete opposites, <laughs> you would have picked Paul Vallis and Brandon Johnson. Brandon Johnson last night, his crowd was thrilled. Uh, he was exuberant. Here is how he closed out his acceptance speech last night. Listen to this. So here's the truth. As good as it feels right now, this moment is just the beginning, Chicago. We got work to do. 
and we're willing to put in that work. If tonight is proof of anything, it's proof that anything is possible, Chicago. That we can build a Chicago as big and as generous as our promises. That City Hall can truly belong to the people. I can't do this by myself, y'all. Are y'all with me? We have to take this movement to City Hall to make sure that we give people a guarantee. No longer can we leave it to chance that our children will have quality schools, good paying jobs, and an environment that speaks to justice. We can't leave it to chance. Because I believe in us, you believe in me, Chicago, we can have a better Chicago. We can. Now look, we may not always agree all the time. Trust me, I come from a large family. We fight over the Thanksgiving menu, and it's the same menu every year. But there's one thing that I know for sure, that these challenges are not too big. Because we didn't just get here, y'all. We've been about this work. And so, for the sake of our children, for the sake of our families, the challenges that are ahead of us, Chicago, we can defeat this structural inequality. We have built a multiracial, multi-generational movement from one end of the city to the other end of the city. We can build a better, stronger, safer Chicago, and tonight is just the beginning. So do me a big favor, Chicago, so the whole world can know, because you believe it deep down in your soul. Brandon is better. <laughs> Brandon is better. I think I think we have the uh, the campaign slogan that he's going to use for the next four weeks. Brandon is better. Brandon Johnson, Cook County Commissioner, um, up until recently on the payroll of the Chicago Teachers Union. Paul Vallis, former schools CEO, former budget director under Mayor Daley. It is uh, it's an interesting matchup. Both of them have passionate support, but they have to reach beyond their base because for both of them, the base, while passionate it may be, it's not sufficient in numbers to put them over the finish line. Who will they reach out to? What sort of uh, support will they get? Endorsements going forward? We will be here for all of it. Let's take a break. We'll be back with more right after this. Podcasts of Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Just search WCPT 820. WCPT Replay. I am talking with Rick Smith. When you talk about extremism, it doesn't matter what label you give to them. These are terrorists. These are extremists. These are people who hate our country. But Rick, they would say they love the country more than you. Just because they're louder, just because they, they will incite violence, just because they have some twisted view of what they believe this country is about doesn't mean that they love this country any more than I do. And this is where the left had better reclaim the flag and reclaim patriotism, because standing up for the values of this country is patriotic. Attempting to overthrow an election? Seriously? We're going to call that patriotism in this country? 
No, I'm not, I'm not buying it. This is where we've got to reclaim the, the public space and, and proclaim our love for this country. I love this country, and I will fight for this country because this is the place that gives people opportunity. Keep listening to WCPT 820. Because facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT Willow Springs, is powered by ComEd. See how ComEd is preparing for a clean energy future at comed.com slash clean energy. Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I am very pleased to be joined by Chris Bury. You know him as a longtime network newsman. He is also the DePaul University journalist in residence. And he is a great observer of all things political. How are you, Chris? Hey, I'm well, Joan. How are you? I'm good. You know, I uh, stayed up late Monday to uh, join the Rick Smith show, stayed up late last night to do election night. Honestly, my old bones are a little tired. (laughs) You know, it's so fascinating watching Chicago politics. It's like, you know, digging into a seven layer cake because there are so many elements, personality, tribes, race, the unions, money, you name it. It it still one of the most fascinating political cities in America. And what a fascinating race that we had in, in the election. Uh, and what a uh, incredibly interesting road ahead between now and April 4th. Tell me what made an impression on you, what you thought was particularly interesting. First of all, it was clear to me that This election was a referendum on Lori Lightfoot. Yes, she was dealt a difficult hand with COVID, the school shutdowns, the city shutdowns, the George Floyd protests. But as you alluded to earlier, she alienated too many people, voters and colleagues and allies. Uh, So I think it was a referendum on her, um, as well as, as we all know, every single poll said that the issue number one, number two, and number three was crime. And so much of politics is about emotion. And I think people were answering the question, do you feel safer now than you did four years ago? And for many Chicagoans, most Chicagoans, the answer was no. Um, so I think that was the, the kind of the key to the election. The surprising thing to me is, I think you mentioned earlier, is that the surge that we saw from Brandon Johnson, you know, near the end. And some of that, I think, was maybe a tactical mistake by Lightfoot, who trained all of her early fire on Chewy Garcia. That may have knocked him out of the running, but for a lot of Lightfoot supporters, especially, I think, in the last couple of weeks, Brandon Johnson emerged as a a clear alternative to Lightfoot. So those are the things that kind of struck me just looking at the results last night. I think that you've made a really interesting observation because I suspect that her campaign felt that if they could knock Chewy out of the race, that would make her by far the front runner to go up against Vallis. I think maybe because of his relationship with the teachers union, maybe because he was so bold in uh, announcing a new line of taxes he wanted. I think a lot of people thought, oh, you know, well, you know, he's 
young and passionate, but that campaign's not going to go anywhere. He's not hitting the right buttons, you know. And uh, I have to believe that, honestly, not only do I think Lori Lightfoot was surprised by the surge Brandon Johnson made toward the end, I get the sense that Brandon Johnson's campaign was a little surprised by it as well, that his message really caught fire the way it did. He's certainly a charismatic speaker, and you played some clips uh, a moment ago that demonstrate that pretty well. I mean, he has probably the most charisma of anybody in the race. Um, And for whatever reason, Chewy Garcia really underperformed. I mean, I was just checking um, his vote totals last night um, compared to what they were, you know, in 2015. And he only got, you know, 70,000 votes. That's less than half of what he got in the 2015 uh, election. So, you know, I think the other big surprise is Garcia really did not fare well at all in the city um, last night. So we have one hell of a race. (laughs) I mean, it's going to be a fascinating five weeks. Let's uh, talk about Garcia a a little bit more, because he, he, remember, was pretty late getting into the race. A lot of people, groups that had endorsed him in 2015, had already made their endorsements. And you know that whenever anybody throws their hat into the ring for an important race, the first thing they they do behind the scenes is they start calling potential donors. So I was kind of surprised because I thought, you know, he's missed out on, A, some of the endorsements that he got before, and probably some of the donors who would have supported his campaign in a bigger way. But I was told... Oh, that doesn't matter. He's going to make up lost ground. He's got this huge organization. Everybody knows him. He's got name recognition. Early on, the people who supported him, I think, sort of felt like he would just float to the top of um, of the whole pile of candidates. And that never happened. I kept talking to people and I kept saying, "Is you know, is there something about his campaign that I'm not seeing? Because it seems... Okay, I understand that, you know, he's a nice guy, but his whole campaign seemed so, it was so very low-key that I almost kind of got the feeling either that he thought he had it sewn up and didn't have to work for it or that he just didn't care. What You know, what did you, what was your impression of that whole campaign from start to finish? I agree with you on both of those points. He got in late, and so some of the, Big players in the city uh, were already looking in other directions. Um, Chewy Garcia, you know, I mean, this time, of course, the teachers union uh, got behind Brandon Johnson. Very powerful union in Chicago, really knows how to get out the vote. And uh, when I looked at, at Garcia on television, it seemed to me that he was kind of stuck in a, a time warp, you know, uh, back in 2015. And he didn't really seem to have... Um, you know, changed that much. So maybe he was taking his base for granted. And I saw a lot of analysis that said that he had this incredible base. And when you look at the map, um, you know, he really turned out well in, you know, three areas of the city, uh, Little Village and uh, Pilsen uh, on the south and west sides, and then uh, a little bit up uh, northwest in Ukrainian Village and in the far south uh, Chicago Hegwish area. 
um, he did pretty well. But that was, if you look at the map, it's pretty striking. There are just three little splotches there uh, for Chewie. Um, and as we look at the map going ahead, it's going to be really, uh, really interesting. And I think both Johnson and Vallis have enormous work to do into reaching out beyond their constituencies. And whoever does a better job is going to win. I was talking to a friend when I was off air last night, a friend who's a a government geek or political junkie, whatever you want to say, like me. And that was one of the points they were making. Okay, both Brandon Johnson and Paul Vallis are the two front runners, but neither of them got enough votes in and of the votes they got to put them over the top. So where do they go? Where do they go from here? Somebody, I forget what I was reading this morning, uh, but it was uh, somebody, maybe it was Greg Pratt in the Tribune, was like, you know, who is Lori Lightfoot going to support either of them? Well, she's kind of on the record as hating both of them. So is she going to just sit this one out? And there was this speculation, like, who is going to, of the nine, who's going to throw their lot in with one of the candidates? Because, you know, when it was a runoff before, as you well know, uh, Lori Lightfoot, one of the areas of the city of Chicago where she didn't do as well as you might think were in heavily black areas, particularly um, black churches. You know, they didn't quite know uh, whether or not to trust this gay woman, you know, in in politics and after he didn't make the runoff, Willie Wilson, who is very strong in the religious community, really took Lori Lightfoot by the hand, brought her to some of these churches, and sort of used his goodwill to pave the way for her. A lot of people believe that kind of help was instrumental in her success. I don't see Lori Lightfoot taking either Paul Vallis or Brandon Johnson by the hand and saying, these are my voters. I bequeath them to you. And I don't know if she has that power anymore. It's not like she can be a kingmaker after she got so soundly defeated. So my guess is that Lightfoot supporters uh, from four years ago are going to probably, you know, split their their votes with the more progressive among them. Um, heading over to uh, to Johnson and and many others, uh, particularly I think on the north side um, and certain other neighborhoods, um, are going to go to Vallis because uh, they see him as being stronger on crime. And I think as we head into the general election, you know I don't see crime going away as the major issues, and we couldn't have, you know, as you suggested at the beginning of the show, we couldn't have two more different visions for how Chicago should confront crime. And to me, that's going to be the really interesting question. But again, it's a seven-layer cake. So it's not only the, the issues, but it's the tribes. You know, it's the, it's the racial dynamics. It's the money. It's the union. We have so many factors that we have to bake into this cake. I know in a couple of seconds we're going to take a break, but one last comment I want to make along the lines of this particular conversation the kinds of, well, you know what? Maybe I'll just set this up and give you a chance to think about it while we take the break. Because right now, conversations are taking place. Um, I don't know what conversation took place last time around between Willie Wilson and Lori Lightfoot. But from everything that I have sensed and read and learned, 
Willie Wilson felt that he was going to be a Lori Lightfoot insider. Whether he was going to be appointed to something or other um, isn't isn't necessarily clear. But he clearly felt that he was going to be an advisor, a mentor, that basically she was going to take his calls once she was elected in office. And um, a lot of people believe that after she was elected mayor, she didn't do that for whatever reason, you know, for whatever reason, she she didn't take the calls and she didn't make him feel like he was one of her people, which kind of led to him once again running against her. And, you know, he garnered from I think the final tally was something like 48,000 votes. And if those votes had gone to her, you know, maybe she would be in the race with Paul Vallis. So I want to talk about what kinds of conversations you speculate are happening now between these candidates about whose support's going to go to whom, what they what they should do, what they might do. I'm talking to Chris Beery, DePaul University, journalist in residence. We're talking about the election last night. We'll talk more after this. Podcasts of Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Just search WCPT 820. Chicago's Progressive Talk, WCPT 820, where facts matter. Don't turn that dial. A dangerous mistake to make. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. I'm joined by Chris Bury, longtime network newsman and currently DePaul University journalist in residence. We are talking about the mayor's race last night. Paul Vallis, Brandon Johnson, going to be on the ballot for a runoff to be to determine who's going to be the next mayor. It'll be on April 4th. Right now, there are a lot of endorsements, you know, the endorsements that went to the other seven candidates those people are probably rethinking where they're going to go. The candidates themselves may be thinking about who they're going to support, if either of those two. What kind of conversations do you think are taking place right now, Chris? I think you're probably right that, you know, Willie Wilson is going to be uh, the most heavily courted man in Chicago for a while. Um, it is interesting because... You know, Wilson is a a conservative on crime, certainly. He was famously quoted as saying the Chicago police should hunt down suspects like rabbits. Um, He got a lot of uh, pushback after that comment. So which he never but he never backked away from saying that he he, never did. did. So, you know, he is a a tough on crime um, African-American with a a constituency, um, a constituency that probably um, would be more predisposed to uh, to Brandon Johnson, except for the issue of crime. So I think Willie Wilson is in a really interesting um, position here. Um, Lightfoot, too. I, I don't know what kind of, you know, she aimed her fire at everybody. So I don't know how much uh, residual goodwill is left between uh, Lightfoot and um, and either Johnson or, or Vallis. And, you know, at the end of the day, I'm not convinced that those endorsements are going to mean a huge amount. Um, I think it really is going to be uh, a second look for a lot of Chicagoans. You know, we did not have great turnout yesterday. Um, Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, it was pretty, as, as I think the City Board of Elections spokesman said, it was pretty sluggish. Um, although the early voting and, and mail-in voting was much better than it was in 2019. So we have a brand new race. A lot of people who did not vote and who were not terribly engaged, you know, may you know, now take a, a hard look at, at both candidates. So I think personally that television spending uh, and the kind of commercials that are, are crafted may be, you know, more important than, you know, whatever Willie Wilson and Lori Lightfoot decide to do with their supporters. You know, there's an, an I want to talk to you about self-awareness. I think I've often believed that when I'm interviewing a candidate, I believe that the very best candidates want me to ask tough questions. They want me to ask about their perceived weaknesses or criticisms because it gives them a forum to refute it, to turn the tide, to get their message out on those issues. And that's one thing that I've judged people by. So I think that both Brandon Johnson and Paul Vallis, while they know where their support's coming from, I think they also have to look deeply at the criticisms being leveled at them. And I think a lot of whether or not their campaigns are effective going forward, it's going to rely on how well they address the criticisms, because that's what's going to bring new people into the tent. I think you're too attached to the teachers union. Well, let me explain how I see that relationship going forward. You know, Paul Bellis, well, I think you're too conservative. Well, let me tell you about some of the progressive ideas that I have. That's what I think. How important do you think that kind of self-awareness is at this stage of the mayoral campaign? No, I think it will be really important over the next few weeks that both these candidates meet regularly with news media that can ask difficult questions, and they should be you know, forced to respond. I think you make a great point that both of these candidates need to be pressed. You know, Vallis needs to be pressed on his endorsement from the Fraternal Order of Police. Um, I think that Johnson, you know, has to ask, answer the question of whether he's going to be a tool of the Chicago Teachers Union. He also faces some really tough questions on his tax plan, which I don't <laughs> think has gotten a lot of attention really in this race at all because crime is so important. But my guess is that the tax plan is going to emerge as a really big issue between now and April because I don't think most Chicagoans have any idea about what these candidates are saying uh, about taxes. So I hope that they both engage. I hope there's lots of debates, and I hope that the news media here in Chicago, as they usually do very well, really press the candidates on, on their positions, both on their strengths and weaknesses. And while we're on this topic of, of self-awareness, um, let's do some Monday morning quarterbacking here. I asked... Lori Lightfoot Friday, when I was talking to her, I said, you know, the one of the main criticisms of you has been how abrasive you have been. You know, she lost the support of Tom Tunney, who was one of her people in the city council. Uh, she lost Susan Sedlowski-Garvest. Uh, oh, God, you know who I'm talking about. Um, who was one of her lieutenants in the city council. And both of them said, we can't work with her anymore. Um, Sedlowski Garza said 
she was done. I mean, she, she it was like a divorce. She it was like she couldn't take it any anymore. And when I asked Lori Lightfoot about that, she went to the, well, you know, I'm a strong woman, and any time a strong woman is strong, you're going to get this kind of pushback. And I'm not saying there's not truth to that, and I'm not saying that any successful woman hasn't faced that kind of disrespect. But as Tom Tunney, you know, Tom Tunney thought about running against her, and when he decided not to, he threw his support to Paul Vallis. This was the, the, the head of the zoning committee, for God's sake. And he said, you know, Joan, successful politicians, they can be tough. God knows Rahm Emanuel was no pushover. He said, but the most successful politicians praise in public, criticize in private. And that's how you get things done. And I don't know, maybe being combative served her as a prosecutor. Maybe being combative served her as she was trying to become a partner in a world-class law firm. And here she was, this black gay woman. But I don't believe being combative served her as mayor. And I don't think she was self-aware enough to make the course correction. What do you think about all that? Yeah, I think there's a great deal of merit in what you're saying. You know, David Axelrod made an interesting point yesterday, the former Obama strategist and longtime Chicago political consultant. You know, he said, Lori Lightfoot's problem is that she tried to solve problems with a closed fist instead of an open hand. And I think that summed up pretty neatly um, you know, what you're talking about, that she was seen as abrasive, that longtime allies and supporters um, actually lost faith in her and um, left her campaign and supported other candidates. And your interview with her, you know, raises another really important question, because I saw that, you know, multiple times over the last few years. Reflexively, whenever Lori Lightfoot was criticized, she came up with, you know, a different version of what she told you. Oh, that's not legitimate criticism. They're just attacking me because I'm a gay black woman. Well, I'm sorry. You know, that that excuse gets pretty old when you use it every single time. And that speaks directly to the self-awareness. You know, politicians are going to be criticized, you know, as <laughs> it ain't beanbag, as the famous saying goes. But I do think that you have to uh, respond in ways that are not, you know, defensive and pugilistic. And I think that, you know, overwhelmingly, that was her response. But, you know, I can't believe that Tom Tunney walked away without it. You know, he's he's a reasonable guy, and he not only was a supporter of hers, uh, you know, um, he, you know, he's one of the leading lights uh, representing the gay community in city council. So you'd think there'd be a natural allegiance there. I can't believe that in his private conversations with her, he didn't say you're getting in your own way. You're making things more difficult, more adversarial than they need to be. You know, you need to make friends, not enemies. But it doesn't seem like any of those conversations had any effect. Do you think that when you get to be successful, you simply lose the power to adjust? Because I do think a lot of that combativeness got her uh, to where she was before she entered political life. But it didn't serve her after that. And she couldn't change course. If she had been able to change course, do you think it would have made a difference? I think it might have. Um 
I keep thinking about um, how Rahm Emanuel, who faced some of the same criticisms, you know, was self-aware. Because if you remember, you know, going back to that uh, campaign where all of a sudden we saw television commercials of Rahm and a sweater, you know, a fuzzy sweater and a a warm fire. Well, that's because, you know, all of his advisors were telling him, Rahm, your public persona is that you're, you know, too much of a hard guy, that you don't have, you know, demonstrate any warmth. And so I think he had some self-awareness, at least in making those commercials where he attempted to soften his image. And I'm not sure Lori Lightfoot ever did that. The other thing that I you know, recall really distinctly about Lightfoot is remember the text messages that were uh, released, I believe it was by the Chicago Tribune, uh, when she was in a fight over the um, uh, Christopher Columbus statue and the, the sort of back and forth with mm-hmm. all the men representing. And, and I mean, her personal you know, language in those fights was anything but, you know, uh, diplomatic. I mean, it was just, it was raw and insulting and vicious. And, you know, maybe that was her idea of what you have to be to be a strong mayor in Chicago. But I think for, you know, ordinary people who read that, it was like, wait a minute, is this the way our mayor deals with her adversaries with such a clear uh, lack of respect? And I don't think that helped. I got a text while we were doing election coverage because, you know, I was like, you know, call in, tell us who you voted for. And somebody uh, texted in, I voted for Mayor Lightfoot to have a second term, but I don't ever want to hear about her big body parts ever again. (laughs) Yeah, we won't go into that, but uh, yeah. yeah, that's exactly what those uh, text messages were um, were implying. Yeah, and he, like, and this person voted for her, and they were um, really, really put off by that. I think that if she could have been self aware enough early on, but you know, maybe she felt she had a mandate because that was a sense that I also got from her. Because remember, in her inaugural address. Where, you know, you'd expect her to be, gosh, we're great, you're great, I'm great, everybody's great, we're going to be great, we're going to be even greater, it's going to be awesome. That's what I expect from an inaugural address. Um, and instead, she was like, like, see these council people sitting behind me, they're all crooks, and I'm going to take them down, and that's what you sent me here to do, and by God, I'm going to do it. I mean, I saw some of the older people, like, looking at each other, like, what the hell is she talking about? What is she saying? Uh, uh, and so maybe it wasn't just that she wasn't self-aware. Maybe she thought that's what voters wanted from her. Do you think? Well, it certainly backfired because she lost uh, control of the city council. And I think it's pretty clear that as we look at who's being elected uh, alderman uh, and that we are, we're going to have a new mayor, uh, either Johnson or Vallis, that it's pretty clear that the mayor's, you know, old ironclad control over the city council really is going to be a, a bygone thing. I mean, it started to slip away during Emmanuel's second term. It really started to dissipate uh, with Emmanuel. And I think our new generation of aldermen um, are going to be a little bit more independent. So I think that 
whoever the next mayor is, it's not going to be uh, some kind of a, a rubber stamp city council, uh, e- even though Chicago is is used to that. It really has mm-hmm. been changing, and my guess is it's going to change even more. DePaul journalist and residents Chris Bury and I are going to continue our post-election analysis right after the news. We'll be back. The Tom Hartman Radio Program provides all of the intelligence, information, and insight you'll need to win the water cooler wars. Weekdays 11 to 2, right here on WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. The reason that I listen to you from the infamous other side, you will call a spade a spade, and if it's indefensible, you will not defend it. And you know what? I can respect that. I'm telling you, CPT 820. DePaul journalist in residence Chris Bury joins me. We've been talking about the election last night, and we have been talking about what is going to be happening in the city council going forward, um, at least 15 seats will have new older people because of either defections or promotions or retirements in the city council. There's going to be quite a bit of turnover. And, you know, you were talking, Chris, about the fact that whoever the next mayor is, whether it's Paul Vallis or Brandon Johnson, they might not find the rubber stamp city council that previous mayors, um, Rich Daly, I'm looking at you, that previous mayors uh-huh. have enjoyed. Uh, Matt Martin, every once in a while, pops up with a resolution. I think one of his most recent was, hey, we're the city council. Why don't we name our own committee chairs? <laughs> and uh, and uh, I think you're right. I think it's uh, it's a trend. And I think it is only going to, we're going to see more of that rather than less of it going forward. It's probably good for representation because if people in neighborhoods feel that their representatives have some actual power, you know, that's a good thing. But uh, in terms of, you know, the pure power of a mayor, um, it's going to make things more difficult. Maybe that will lead to compromises that benefit more of the city, and and, and one would hope so. But I, I do think that next the next mayor, you know, will have a challenge, and it probably means that, you know, some of the more extreme ideas are going to die um, in the city council. So, you know, we'll we'll see. You know, one thing that I'm I'm kind of wondering about as we look into the next, you know, five weeks whether this campaign is going to get reduced to sort of like cartoon, you know, versions where Johnson paints Vallis as Trump light and and Vallis portrays Johnson as a socialist radical who wants to defund the police. I I hope that this is a a, a campaign of more substance than that. And it's not just a, a bumper sticker campaign because we know that a lot of new money is going to be rolling in over the next five weeks. A lot of new television commercials are going to be out. Uh, but I hope that some of the things that really do affect, you know, the, the people in the city will get serious discussions and, and won't get reduced to these these cartoon versions of, of what the candidates are like. Well, let's talk about that for a second. Um, here at CPT, we did a mayoral forum. We split it into two different panels so that the candidates would have a little bit more time to to interact with one another and answer questions. First of all, I will tell you that the panelists, especially those on the second panel, 
were not thrilled that they were not all on the stage together personally. Uh, that was not a big hit with them. But but even doing that, even trying to create more space, I mean, you get these formats where, okay, I'm going to ask you, Chris, a really important, complex question. You have 30 seconds to answer. You know, I mean, what do we expect when we do these things and we get name-calling? Because, you know, in 30 seconds, I can say that you're an idiot and that might stick with people, but in 30 seconds, can I really explain how your position and my position are inherently different? Yeah, some of the gubernatorial debates were actually, I thought, you know, pretty good. Um, I, I'm hoping we see more of that where we have, you know, maybe one or two moderators uh, and then extensive questions and answers of both candidates on stage. I mean, I think that will be helpful. But, you know, the fact is we're going to just see uh, we've already seen a million television ads, right? We ain't seen nothing yet. I mean, we're going to see so many more ads over the next few weeks. And it's also true that for a lot of folks, that's how the candidates are defined. Uh, But, you know, I'm hoping that even there that we may see some, you know, detail on, on what their plans really are, because, you know, right now, I think that there are these kind of bumper sticker versions, and I think they're misleading you know, and I think they're. I think it's. You know, I think it's misleading to portray uh, Paul Vallis, for example, as you know Trump light. I don't think that's accurate. Although you know, he he famously said back in two thousand nine that he he thought on some issues like a Republican. Any more than I think it's fair to to cast uh, Brandon Johnson as someone who wants to defund the police. He's made it clear that um, he wants to change police funding but that he doesn't want to defund the police. But these are you know, are big questions, as are the tax questions we started to talk about a little while ago. I mean, some of these proposals are you know, enormously consequential for the future of, of Chicago. So my hope is that, that some of these things will be discussed in a meaningful way. <laughs> well, you just go on hoping, mister. <laughs> um, you know, that's what I like about you. <laughs> Optimism, well, I know. Yeah, you know, if you're invited to, to uh, one of these forums, what um, what do you want the candidates to to talk about? Because you know, also you said a lot of people are going to get to know them through their television ads, and I, I fear that that's true. Either because people have a short attention span, or just you know, when we did. Um, when I after we did our forum, I invited all the different candidates to come on the radio with me and just have some time to themselves. And one of our listeners who I was uh, I would think I was Paul Ballas or Lori Lightfoot I was talking to. And one of our listeners was really angry that I wasn't asking them about pensions. First of all, I had a list of like 12 topics that I wanted to hit. And frankly, pensions was pretty far down because I've discovered you talk about pensions and most people's eyes glaze over. It's like they know it's a it's a tricky subject to talk about with any real interest. And yet this listener afterwards was furious with me. Like it was like they texted in. What's the point of you? You're a terrible host. You're a terrible interview. You know, you didn't talk about pensions. And I was like, you know what? I had a long list and, you know, of one to 10 pensions was probably 10. 
just didn't just didn't get there. You can't please everybody, but to please Chris Bury, what should the candidates be talking about when they face off with one another? Well, since crime is the overwhelming issue, I really want to hear detailed plans from both of them. Yes, we know that Paul Vallis, you know, wants to hire, uh, fill the vacancies, the 1,700, and hire additional officers. And I think that's really clear. But I want to know, you know, what else is he going to do to um, to, to reach some of the uh, the neighborhoods where the police are not seen as an ally but as an enemy? How is he going to transform that? And I know he's talked about citizen policing. On the other hand, you know, Brandon Johnson really needs to be pinned down on. He says he won't uh, promise or he won't, you know, confirm that he would even fill the existing vacancies in the police department. Why Late not? in the campaign, I heard him, I think, I don't know if this was an ad or an interview, where he said he would hire 200 new officers. There's 1,700 vacancies I know. in the police department right now. So just to keep it up to, you know, budgeted staffing levels. So I think he, he's going to face some difficult um, questions on that. And I think that they both face questions on how um, allied are they with the major unions that support them. You know, you want to ask Paul Vallis, are you going to be a tool of the Fraternal Order of Police, whose uh, leader is a, a Trump supporter, um, who has said positive things about the insurrection? Um, I, I know, obviously, Vallis does not speak for uh, the head of the Fraternal Order of Police, but I think he's got to be asked those questions. And and likewise, Brandon Johnson has to be asked, you know, to what extent is the Chicago Teachers Union going to dictate educational policy for you? You are a former teacher. Uh, you have enormous backing from the teachers union. Do we want a mayor who's in the pocket of Chicago Public School Teachers Union, where we know that literacy has fallen, where enrollment keeps falling, and yet the budget keeps um, skyrocketing? So I think both of these uh, fellows, you know, really, really need to be um, to be asked some tough questions. And, and I know the Chicago media will do that, you know, as they get the opportunity. But what I discovered, and uh, this was brought home most painfully, Chris, uh, when I gave, not not this week when I talked to Lori Lightfoot, but last week when I spent a half an hour with her on the radio. You know, as, a, as an interviewer, you want to ask the question that gets a meaningful answer. I mean, I don't, you know, if it makes news, great. That's like icing on the cake. But I, it is so hard sometimes to break people out of campaign speak and i try to really ask a very specific question you know not just hey well you know what do you think about public safety but you know we you know we've got uh, we're down 1700 officers where are they going to come from how are you going to make that up and to to be as specific as possible and frankly when i talked to lori i felt defeated no matter how interesting or unusual or specific my questions were, I felt that she just pivoted right into campaign speak. I haven't felt so disappointed in an interview in a long time because usually I can find at least one question that breaks through to a person's humanity. And I think that that's what I would like to see going forward when these candidates are questioned you know, something that shows us 
who they are on the inside, what they really care about, what makes them emotional, you know. Um, and sometimes I think we're really successful at it, and sometimes we are not. What is your technique for breaking through campaign speak to try to get to real information, a real answer? Teach us, well, right. please, well, Obi-Wan. Well, yeah. <laughs> you're right. It, it, it's very difficult because these you know, candidates, especially for major offices, are so, um, uh, so coached, they're so consulted, they're so deft at evading questions. Uh, you know, I, I think it's polite persistence to keep, you know, keep coming back to the, the question that you want uh, answered. And my former boss, uh, Ted Koppel, I thought had some, you know, really, you know, really good techniques. He would just keep interrupting the candidates in a very polite way. He'd say, you know, pardon the uh, interruption or forgive me for interrupting, but you didn't answer my question. <laughs> what I was asking was this. I wasn't asking about that. Would you please come back to my question? And he was never um, angry or insulting about it. You know, he did it in a very diplomatic way, but he didn't hesitate to try to bring the candidate or you know, the politician or elected official, you know, back to the question and, and get it answered. Uh, I think it's somewhat easier to do that, you know, live because you know that the audience is rooting for you, right? The aud- <laughs> no, that's the audience, you know, is on your side as the inter- they want these political figures feet held to the fire. They are cheering you on. Just as I, you know, when I'm watching television and I see, uh, you know, an anchor person who is really doing a great job of, you know, getting past these surface answers, um, I'm, I'm yelling at the screen, you go. That's just great. It's, it's not easy with modern politicians, but, you know, I, I think you have to be, you know, just be prepared to be on the verge of rude to get your, your questions answered. Yeah. And in a one-on-one, I, I agree. That's, a, that's brilliant. The problem in any kind of forum is that if you keep circling back, you didn't answer my question. This is my question. Do it again. The other candidate gets ticked off because they see this candidate instead of 30 seconds, they're getting three minutes now. And it's going to be like, okay, where's my three minutes? And then, you know, the format goes out the window and dogs and cats start living together and uh, life as we know it comes to an end. So it's 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 tricky. And the people... Uh, the people who do it well um, work really hard at it. And I think everybody does it a little bit differently. What I hate to see is when candidates just run roughshod over moderators. And that's uh, sometimes I see that with people who haven't moderated before. It's like they can't decide, you know, they know they're supposed to be sticking to a format and, and, you know, they, they don't want to disrupt things and, you know, and, and they're, they're sort of just not confident enough to say, wait a minute, <laughs> excuse me, <laughs> let's back well, up here. Well, I mean, the good thing in Chicago is that we have um, a pretty good, I think, press corps. You know, I, I've been in other cities where the uh, the, the press corps is not as uh, aggressive. Um, Chicago, 
you know, has always been a place where people love politics, right? It's always mm-hmm. been described as one of the favorite spectator sports of Chicagoans. You know, you go to turn on local news in Los Angeles and you see lots of stories about, you know, the Kardashians or you know, whoever know. Is, is hot at the time. Oh, my you, God. You, go, you know, you turn on television in Chicago and you're going to see – you know, some pretty hard-nosed political reporting because that's what the audience demands. I think we're very lucky that we do live in a city uh, that that takes politics and always has taken politics, you know, pretty seriously. Yeah, it's a fun and amusing and, uh, you know, a good fight, but people do pay attention here, um, which you you can't say that in in some other cities. Um, You know, I I think Los Angeles, San Francisco, um, to a lesser extent, New York, I don't think anybody... Um, has the kind of, I, I don't know, gladiator news media, <laughs> you know, political culture that we have um, in Chicago. Um, I was even kind of surprised in New York. I didn't think the New York local reporters were, um, you know, I was covering primaries in New York uh, when I was on different campaigns, particularly the Bill Clinton campaign. And I, I just didn't think the New York local reporters were as tough as the ones in Chicago. So I, mm-hmm. I think we're, we're, we're fortunate in that. We have a pretty robust uh, press corps. And now instead of, you know, however, we had nine candidates, now we just have two, at least for mayor. So, <laughs> uh, you know, they're, they're going to get serious attention, uh, both of them, uh, from all quarters. And so I think that's going to be good for democracy, good for Chicago. And like we, t- we talked about at the beginning, you couldn't ask for two more differing visions of of the future, I think, um, because they really are different people, far different constituencies, and we are just going to see one hell of a race. Um, By the way, I just got a press release from Mayor Lori E. Lightfoot. Today, Superintendent David Brown informed me he'd be resigning as superintendent of the Chicago Police Department, effective March 16th. Now, in his defense, he is 63, and that is the retirement age. But let's face it, this guy is jumping before he gets pushed. Chris oh, Beery no and I question. are going to be back <laughs> with more political talk right after this. Stay on top of the latest news in and around Chicago with Joan Esposito. Live, local, and progressive. Every weekday afternoon from 2 to 5 p.m. on WCPT 820. Because facts matter. You're listening to WCPT 820. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm speaking with DePaul journalist in residence, Chris Bury. And uh, in our final segment, uh, let's take a look beyond the mayor's race. Let's take a look at some of the aldermanic races. There are, I was trying... (laughs) I was trying to count how many of them are going to a runoff. You know, a lot of um, seats were wide open. A few people were lucky enough, Scott Wagespach, um, to run unopposed. So, um, you know, Bennett Lawson ran unopposed. We are going to um, have some interesting aldermanic races, including Nicole Lee. She, of course, was the uh, first... Asian-American city council member. She was appointed to fill that seat by Mayor Lori Lightfoot. It was uh, believed that she might be facing a number of challengers. She did face a number of challengers, and uh, she is going to be involved in a, in a runoff election. Do you think, is that is that just about her 
Chris, or is that another repudiation of the mayor? I don't know, uh, Joan. You know, that is a district, Chinatown and uh, Bridgeport, where one would think the um, Asian-American candidate would be strong. Uh, but, you know, it, it, it looked like she's not getting uh, the, the sort of support one might expect from an incumbent. Uh, we have some other, you know, places where there there may be a runoff. Uh, it looks like the first ward is is a very, very, um, I mean, <laughs> it looks like yeah. uh, Alderman La Spada uh, has a huge well, lead. But I, I was talking about that particular race at the top of the show. You know, we still have 100,000 mail-in ballots that are going to be counted. He's, but when the precincts were all counted, he was about 49.22%. Maybe, maybe he can pull this out with a few mail-in ballots. And we're talking about, you know, how the new city council is going to deal with uh, the next mayor. And, you know, La Spada, um, like Brandon Johnson, is very much aligned with the Chicago Teachers Union, which has uh, at least a couple of other automatic candidates who uh, seem to be doing pretty well. So one of the, you know, one of the results we may see is, you know, the, the Chicago Teachers Union, which has always been powerful, really flexing its muscle in this election in a way it hasn't really mm-hmm. in a while, despite, you know, despite the, the, the difficulties that uh, they had with, with Lightfoot, with uh, her her COVID uh, uh, rules, basically relaxing them, you know, with the the strike that that went on during her term. So we could see a, sort of a resurgent Chicago Teachers Union here in the city council, as well as on the fifth floor at City Hall if Johnson wins. I was talking to Greg Hines a couple of week, uh, weeks ago from Crane's Chicago Business, and I haven't delved into Um, what the Chicago Teachers Union has said over the years as far as taxes. But Greg said that many of the taxes that Brandon Johnson was saying he wanted to see enacted were taxes that the Chicago Teachers Union has been pushing for for years. I have no independent knowledge of that. Uh, Is that something that you're familiar with? I know we all have to get familiar with it now. Well, um, he has been aligned with an organization that was uh, pushing some pretty dramatic um, tax proposals. But even if you just set those aside and look at what Johnson himself has backed in his campaign, uh, he's talking about a billion dollars in new spending, you know, a surcharge on commuters who come into Chicago from the suburbs on uh, metro trains, uh, uh, an employee head tax, which we used to have, and uh, really hated by business. He's talking about a big new tax on on airlines. Um, the left in Chicago has always been talking about taxing financial transactions at, you know, the Board of Trade and the Mercantile Exchange, um, which, uh, you know, Lightfoot uh, opposed, which Rahm Emanuel proposed. You know, he's talking about raising the hotel tax. So and the transfer tax, which actually Lori Lightfoot talked about on higher end home sales, and he's talking about selling Chicago water. So here's another whole area. You know, he's got a lot of highly specific proposals here, which haven't been terribly well examined because there were so many candidates. Now they're going to come sharply into focus. And I think that's going to be really interesting. My suspicion is 
that taxes are going to, you know, they're not going to replace crime, certainly, but they're going to they're going to come into focus as a clear number two issue in this mayoral race. Chris, it is always a delight to talk to you. Thank you so much for sharing this hour with us uh, here at WCPT. Anytime, Joan. Thank you very much. Okay, we are going to take a break. We are going to uh, we're going to have a national perspective when we come back after this. We know what we think of us. Let's find out what the rest of the country thinks about us when we come right back after this. There's no excuse to miss Joan Esposito. It's number one on my stereo. Live, local, and progressive. You can listen to her daily at WCPT820.com on your computer or phone. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT Willow Springs is powered by ComEd. See how ComEd is preparing for a clean energy future at ComEd.com slash clean energy. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. We know that this uh, race for mayor has gotten a lot of attention, seen a lot of reporting on CNN, on the front page of the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and the Washington Post. So we know what we think about us. Let's find out what the rest of the country thinks about us, because really, isn't it all about us? Uh, Bill Scher has joined us before. He is a reporter at Washington Monthly, and he is here again today. Bill, how are you? I'm great. How are you? Well, I'm a little tired. It was a little bit of a late night. Could have been worse. There were times when uh, the Board of Elections said, ah, you know what? It might be a couple of weeks before we know who's going to be in this um, mayor's runoff. And we were like, oh, God, kill me now. But indeed, we did get some results, uh, some very interesting results. And um, do you, based in Washington Monthly, looking at all things, you know, <clears throat> congressional and Senate and government on Capitol Hill, do you care about our mayor's race bill? Well, I certainly do, uh, and I certainly hope other people do. Uh, I mean, our, our cities are the lifeblood of the country, uh, and they definitely – and we we could use a real rich discussion about urban policy, what urban policies are, you know, work best. And however you feel about the outcome of the election yesterday, I do think with both Vallis and Johnson, you're going to get two competing visions – for the city that could really lead to a very rich discussion and hopefully an, an informed elector before your final your final vote. If you had to describe what you see as Vallis's position, his support and Brandon Johnson, how would you tell us your dinner partner tonight about these candidates? <laughs> you know, it's, it's you know, as always, it's hard to put things you, know, you don't know, oversimplify. Um, oh, sure. Let's do it. Let's oversimplify, Bill. <laughs> I mean, obviously, Vallis is relatively conservative and, and Johnson is relatively progressive. Uh, I'm sure Vallis doesn't like that descriptor. He probably wouldn't call himself that. But on, on the spectrum of Chicago politics, that's where you would put him. Uh, and it's going to be his challenge, Vallis's challenge, to say, hey, I'm not – I'm not just some Republican. I'm, I'm, I'm not a Ron DeSantis or a Donald Trump. Uh, I just have a different way of looking at things uh, that things have been done in, in the past. I want to invest more in police. I've been supportive of charter schools, all that kind of stuff, and, and try to put that in a, 
in a frame that doesn't make him seem like he's out of step with the mm-hmm. average Chicago voter. Uh Johnson uh, is looking at reforming uh, public safety where you would have uh, where you would uh, try to not eliminate the police, but try to redirect them towards dealing with violent crimes and creating, uh, I believe, a separate uh, a, a separate group of people who are trained in mental health issues to respond to. Uh, problems that involved uh, mental mental health, people having mental health crises, and not have police come in during those sorts of episodes. So he he doesn't call that defund the police. He calls that let's be tough and smart. Uh, you know, Vallis is going to say that's akin to defund the police, uh, and Johnson, I'm sure, is going to say what Vallis is promoting is is leading too far in a uh it, it, too far being tough but not smart and i'm sure that's going to be a lot of what the debate going forward is going to center on in new york city there are a lot of people who believe that eric adams became mayor because people didn't care about any issue as much as they cared about their personal and public safety and he was perceived as being toughest on crime do you think that is an accurate assessment? And do you think the same thing is or might be happening in Chicago? Well, Adams is a is an interesting case study. He, he definitely ran as the candidate who was most focused on crime uh, and taking crime seriously. But he had a unique uh, background and record to bring to the discussion because, one, he's African-American. Two, he was a police officer. Three, he said he he had been uh, mistreated by police officers when he was younger, and that while he was a police, and four, that while he was a police officer, he tried to reform the police from the inside. So he was pulling support from <laughs> both both elements of the debate, uh, and that and that was so he was able to walk that tricky line very well, and, and clearly you know became mayor of New York City. Um, you know, neither Vallis or Johnson has that kind of background to work with. Johnson's African American, mm-hmm. but he's not a former police officer. Uh, Vallis is white, not a police officer, has the endorsement of the Fraternal Order of Police, but not necessarily a positive, depending on what kind of voter you are. Uh, so uh, they don't have the the kind of street cred that uh, you know, Adams like to say, "I'm not new to this; I'm true to this." Uh, <laughs> so that helped him. That helped him. Uh, take positions that were you know, relatively conservative, but didn't offend a Democratic New York City voter as much as if they came from somebody who wasn't a police officer themselves. So what happened in New York, you think, was unique to New York and unique to Eric Adams? I mean, I think Adams, like Adams just was a good candidate for New York. He had a lot of personality. Yes, he would say he had a lot of swagger, or maybe I'm maybe I'm quoting you know Saturday Night Live right now. Uh, but <laughs> you know, New Yorkers like big personalities, and he was a big personality, uh, and he and he combined that with you know some fluency talking about policy, having policy ideas. So he he didn't seem like he was just um, uh, just the character the way Andrew Yang came across, who ran in that race too, but never had, never been elected to anything. Never worked in government before, uh, so he was easier to sideline him as someone not really up to the job of a, of a 
a big job like New York City mayor. Uh, and so, so neither, you know, Vallis or Johnson, you know, I, I don't think either one of them are uh, as big a personality as Adams. They don't have the police record as Adams does. Uh, and Chicago being Chicago mayor is also a big job. So it, it's hard to game it out and predict today who is going to uh, have the upper hand in this race. I was just talking to Chris Bury, uh, who was a network newsman and is now the DePaul University journalist in residence. And he said that whether we think it's a good thing or a bad thing, it is quite possible that a lot of voters will make up their mind based on the television ads that they see. You look at politics. You look at not only what's happening in Washington, but things like midterm elections. Talk to me about about the voters you see going to the polls. Now, admittedly, you, Bill, me, Chris Beery, we live and breathe this stuff. You know, we love this stuff. We're passionate about this stuff. But, you know, we're also smart enough to acknowledge that the average human being going about their life does not live it with the same intensity monitoring politics that we do. So do you think that television ads play an outsized role in getting a candidate elected. What do you think of today's voters? Well, certainly in a race like this, uh, you know, most people are not you know, reading newspapers, reading long policy briefs, going to the candidates' websites. You know, most voters don't, don't do that. Although at the same time, uh, this was uh, probably relatively low turnout, uh, especially because it was the first round and no one thought this was the final vote. So that, that's a disincentive to, to people to, to vote. They don't feel like their vote doesn't matter just yet. So those who were voting might be more inclined to actually be an informed voter. Um, now you're going to get into the final round. You're going to probably have more low-information voters getting involved as things are getting real, especially if the race seems close. Close races tend to boost turnout. Uh, and TV is going to matter a lot. I mean, they may not be watching traditional TV. It might be, you know, ads that pop up on YouTube or on Hulu or what have you. Uh, but more likely they're going to see that than what they see on candidate websites or seeing debates and, and things like that. And obviously that's very superficial. Um, but it, it, they, the best ads give a a vibe and a persona that a voter is going to decide, do I connect with this person? Does, does it feel like this person shares my values and my outlook? Uh, and, and of course, I'm sure the negative ads are going to be fast and furious as well. Uh, and, and, I, and so I would expect because they get pretty, pretty brutal over the next several weeks. My favorite thing is when I'm watching Saturday Night Live and I see not only na- uh, national, but I see local politicians and I'm like, good for you. I, I don't know what the demographics of SNL, but, you know, you know, good for you for, I think, trying to reach out to a younger audience. We had a really bad youth turnout yesterday um, and with early voting and everything. Uh, I, I don't know if it's what what to attribute that to. We had good weather. Good weather usually means good turnout in Chicago. So I'm real curious as to who is going to be voting on April 4th. And frankly, this is true in Wisconsin, whereas, you know, they're trying to fill a Supreme Court seat. That's April 4th as well. 
You know, in the Midwest, as long as you've got good weather, you expect good turnout. Good turnout is supposed to support <clears throat> Democratic candidates. But um, it didn't work out that way this time around. We had good weather and a relatively low turnout. We had a relatively low youth vote. Does that bode poorly for Brandon Johnson? You know, maybe it's a stereotype. A stereotype, but you tend to think of the younger voters as being more progressive. Brandon Johnson is the, dare I say, Bernie Sanders of the Chicago mayor's race. I mean, he is the progressive in the race. Do you think that uh, April 4th it will be decided by my generation rather than the younger generation? Well, it's I, I can't speak to I've, – I've not gone back and looked at past Chicago elections and done that kind of analysis to know if, how different this was from past races. As a general matter, municipal elections have low turnout. Uh, I mean, and, and municipal elections, that turn out skews older. It is much harder for a young person to see why a local election is going to matter to them, especially because many young voters are not rooted – to their cities. They may not expect to live there for the next 40 years. They may not think that um, a local zoning battle um, is going to be relevant to them. So it takes a lot of extra labor to draw those voters out and, 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 and explain what is at stake for them. Having said that, I would not extrapolate turnout rates from a first round to a second round. You know, all the uh, you know, again, not everybody you know watches the media closely, but there are ripple effects. So, if all the punditry about the race is no one's going to win this race outright on the first round, no one's close to fifty percent, that takes the temperature way down. There's no urgency anymore. Who knows who's going to be the? Who, if no one's going to win, why should I have to show up? I'll I'll get, do it the next time when mm-hmm. I know it's going to matter. Uh, yeah. Now you got now you got a two person race, totally different ideological vantage points. Uh, now, if we're a week out and the polls say this is 70-30 one way or the other, that's probably going to depress turnout. If we're in like single digits and there are two, two totally different uh, philosophies, particularly on public safety, an issue that young people do care about, uh, that is an opening for Johnson to expand the electorate from where it was yesterday. And I suspect he's going to have to do that to make this competitive for him. Uh, uh, but as I, I would not presume he can't do that because the ingredients are there uh, so long as he can keep this competitive enough to say, this matters. I can win. If you want to change how we do policing in Chicago, I'm your only shot. I'm talking to Bill Scherer. He is a reporter at Washington Monthly. I actually, when we come back from a break, want to talk to him about one of his most recent articles. You know, we're always talking about the Supreme Court and whether or not it should be modified or uh, changed in some way. Well, he wrote a really interesting article about some things that are going on in Israel and maybe with some lessons we need to learn. We're going to talk to Bill Scherer from Washington Monthly about that when we come right back after this. There's no excuse to miss Joan Esposito. It's number one on my stereo. Live, local, and progressive. You can listen to her daily at WCPT820.com on your computer or phone. WCPT820, Chicago's progressive talk, where facts matter. 
Now back to Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm speaking with uh, Bill Scherer, who is a reporter at Washington Monthly. You can uh, read his writing at WashingtonMonthly.com. He wrote an article uh, about, I don't know, uh, three, four days ago about what is going on in Israel with their judiciary and maybe some things going on there we should be paying attention to. Bill, tell my listeners about that, please. I mean, there are literally mass protests happening now, and they have been for days. You have uh, the most uh, right-wing government in Israeli history right now. I mean, Netanyahu is the prime minister again, but uh, as I've seen described, he used to be in, you know, they have a lot of coalition politics in Israel. It used to be in the middle of the coalitions, politically speaking, with some some people a little bit on his left, some people a little bit on his right. Now he's the most liberal person in the current coalition, and Yahoo is not that liberal a guy. Ooh. So that's that's how conservative the current government is right now. Uh, and the Israeli Supreme Court has generally been seen as a more liberal body, and so the uh, conservatives in the coalition, really right away, they got sworn in, um, you know, just, I think, in December. First order of business was changing the law. So the Supreme Court uh, could have their rulings overturned by the parliament in a simple majority vote, except when the decisions uh, were unanimous. Uh, and it's a little... A convoluted, but they have a different system in terms of how to put people on the court. They have a mm-hmm. committee that picks the people, and they part of the one of the proposals is to change who's on the committee. So essentially, the ruling party would fully control that, and they can put who they want on the court un- unfettered. Uh, and there's a retirement age now on the court, and so there's a handful of seats that are coming up very soon, and so they'd be able to add you know, three or four people very quickly. Uh, so they, you basically be ensured there's no way there'd be a unanimous decision on, on anything that would be um, uh, liberal. And so the, the Knesset could overturn almost anything that, that they do. Uh, and so this uh, clearly uh, undermines the notion of an independent judiciary. Uh, polling shows the country is very split on it. Uh, and you literally have polling showing that people are worried about Violence occurring, that civil war occurring, because uh, this one faction of the country might take over the judiciary and have no sense of check and balance uh, at all. Uh, and that's how serious the situation is right now. These protests have been roiling the country for weeks. Uh, and and I grant I, I, I'm I'm a I'm a liberal guy, but I've been I'm not one who has promoted uh, court packing in America. And I may be an outlier on, the, on that subject, but I do think this is an educational. This is what happens when mm-hmm. one party tries to take over the judiciary. It tears countries apart. And even though there was pressure to do that from the left in the first two years of the Biden administration, uh, largely because of Joe Manchin and Curse of Cinema, but also because Biden didn't lean that hard into it. Um, we didn't go the court packing route the last two years. And, uh, We've our democracy is held, you know, as as upsetting as many of the Supreme Court decisions have been, overturning Roe being top of the list. Um, 
we were not in a situation where people on opposite sides of the fence feel that this country isn't mine anymore. People still participate in democracy. Democrats still had a good midterm, as Democrats have good good election cycles, the last three election cycles, mm. without the losing side feeling like uh, all is lost. There's no point being in this democracy anymore. That's I mean, Democracies only work when people on all sides feel like it's still their country. And you're seeing in Israel right now a good chunk of the of the country feeling like that's not the case for them if these uh, anti-independent judiciary reforms go through. But if this court continues in the vein, they've turned over Roe v. Wade. They're probably going to throw out, you know, Biden's um, student loan debt relief. You know, there's there's a lot of really controversial decisions that are potentially coming our way. If, um, you know, if they overturn the ruling that established, uh, the, the, the plan to create gay marriage state to state to state, if they, uh, throw out of uh, this loan forgiveness, if they seem to be, to me, overstepping, I don't feel like the three branches of government are in balance anymore. It feels that it doesn't matter what laws Congress passes. Uh, because the Supreme Court decides which ones stick and which ones don't. Uh, it doesn't matter what Joe Biden tries to bring about because the Supreme Court can say, nah, you know, it doesn't really look so good to us. So um, you say that in Israel, one of the big components here is the alienation of the average person, the average voter. We don't have that here now, but it seems to me a year from now, when we get more of these egregious decisions from the Supreme Court that is clearly headed that way, we might find ourselves in a country where people don't feel that that this country is theirs anymore, that, that they have lost control. What then, Bill? What then? Well, that's I mean, I, I this court is a activist court. I do not like this current court. Uh, they have made rulings that, you know, it's sometimes there's ways you don't like, but you sort of get the judicial reasoning behind them. You know, the Roe v. Wade overturning was an abominable decision. The, the, the reasoning was, was horrendous uh, and with very specious use of history, and I don't defend it in the slightest. Uh, and because they did that, you know, they, they definitely, you know, bruised, the court's legitimacy, uh, their poll numbers went down uh, afterwards. Uh, but an interesting, interesting thing happened soon after. You had that referendum in Kansas. It was only you know six weeks or so after the, the ruling. And so here is a very red state. Uh, and, uh, and the pro-choicers you know, won that referendum handily, preventing the state constitution from essentially, you know, it would, it would literally outlawed abortion immediately, but it would have queued it up. Uh, and I think that moment was a signal to the pro-choice majority that, you know, we're still in this. This still is our country. We still, we still have ways to protect abortion rights. They're not and we can fight down those paths. And, and the, and the election results in November, you know, further solidified that. Uh, so I, I do think that, uh, that, that's one reason why you haven't had people in the streets in front of the Supreme Court, the way you're seeing people in the streets in Israel right now, because there's that sense of this still is my country and we still can protect abortion rights some way. Um, And the other thing I would say, and and look, I think there, I I expect a lot of bad decisions from this court 
uh, for as long as the current composition is in place. Uh, and there's no system that can prevent bad decisions. I mean, any democracy is going to have bad things happen, you know, a part of the time. Uh, I do think it's notable that in 2020, when Donald Trump was trying to steal the election, he did not have help from the judiciary. These are people that he put on the court. He put three people on this court, and they did not do his bidding when he wanted to do his bidding. And that's and that to me is the beauty of the of the system. When you have that lifetime appointment, once you're there, nobody owns you. I mean, they definitely the conservatives definitely vetted people to ensure they could overturn Roe v. Wade, and I'm not defending that at all. But they could not. Trump could not put people on that he could count on to literally destroy democracy and steal an election for him. And that's and that's what the point of the system was designed to prevent, and it worked. Uh, so we didn't create a situation where we overcorrected because of the bad things Republicans did and undermined that, in, that, that judicial independence is so key if you want elections to work, and our elections still work because the Supreme Court didn't get in the way. Judicial independence is a good thing unless you've got a judge who is making decisions based on their religion rather than the law. But how about let's set the bar low, Bill. How about a code of ethics that they're required to follow? How about clear cut rules about when a justice needs to recuse themselves? Clarence Thomas, I'm looking at you there. Um, you know, it's it's. We have none of these things. I mean, Thomas is obviously, you know, the 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 least ethical of the bunch, uh, and you know, he, he's the only one that voted to um, uh, uh, allow uh, to side with Trump uh, mm-hmm. and hamstring the investigation of the January sixth commission. Um, and I absolutely agree; he should have recused himself. And we don't have; uh, it, it's very hard to get the court to patrol itself. It's hard to have rules because the, the, the court is the, are the people that enforce laws. So it's very hard to create a system where they can be, that doesn't involve you know, self-reporting. Uh, so despite that weakness, despite the fact that Thomas was unable to be forcibly recused, he's still the only one. He's the only one of the nine that was, Put, who, who did something uh, in regards to Trump that seemingly political and, and uh, corrupted by conflict of interest. And he's not even a Trump appointee. <laughs> you, know, his, you know, Barrett and Gorsuch and Kavanaugh did not do that because um, they, they, they there's no political obligation for them to do that. Uh, I, I can't speak to Clarence do this to make his wife happy or do it as on, as on a court. I don't know. Obviously, the ethical thing would have been to recuse himself and not and, and take that concern off the table. Um, and he did the wrong thing. And that's going to be part of his you know, legacy going forward. But thankfully, it didn't make the court uh, incapable of doing the right thing when it came to both the election itself and the investigation afterwards. Bill, thank you for joining us. Thank you for talking about your most recent article for Washington Monthly. Uh, Bill Scher is a reporter. You can find his articles at WashingtonMonthly.com. Always a pleasure to talk to you, Bill. Same here. Take care. And maybe next time the article will be, oh, my God, Supreme Court uh, adopts code of ethics, makes it binding. I don't know. I'm not going to hold my breath. 
Um, We are going to take a break. We're going to be back with more local politics after this. This hour of Joan Esposito Live Local and Progressive is brought to you by Team Hochberg. If you want to buy a house or refinance a house, call 855-56-DAVID or visit 56david.com. There are over 10,000 reasons why steel is not sold at Lowe's or Home Depot. Find tools for the job site or your own backyard at over 10,000 authorized local steel dealers. Find yours at SteelUSA.com. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I am joined by former 45th Ward Alderman uh, John Arena, uh, who is here to talk local politics. John, how have you been? John, uh, I'm doing great. Thanks for uh, having me on. Uh, look forward to the conversation. Well, be, before we switch our view to the 45th Ward, uh, you had um, a very cordial, positive relationship with Mayor Lori Lightfoot. Were you surprised she didn't make the runoff? Um, no, I, I really wasn't. Um, and I had, you know, we had, um, I had done some work with her transition team and her administration. And unfortunately, I, I, I didn't stay on. But um, what I saw over the last four years was a turning away from the the, the many progressive issues that she ran on and an inability, I think, on, on her to uh, look for opportunities to coordinate, you know, collaborate with people, um, whether they agreed on things, you know, or not. And, and that's really critical to surviving in politics, um, especially in a city as complex as Chicago, as we're going to, you know, as we see with the, with the way the runoff is, is shaping up. So I think for her, um, I think my biggest disappointment is that I feel like she's harmed the progressive movement because she claimed it as her own. And then she abandoned it for what I think, you know, most people would agree with ego and grievance. And, you know, anytime a progressive gets in and things don't work out, um, then it's kind of a, a mark on the record and people start saying, well, we can't do those things. They can't, we can't achieve them. And she just wasn't the right person to actually get those uh, policies implemented in Chicago. Well, you really make an interesting point because, you know, her whole uh, slogan when she was running last time was bring in the light. And I remember listening to, you know, all these interviews where she talked about all the ways that she was going to open up the process. She was going to bring transparency to the workings of city council like it had never been brought before. And and it's. I don't know. I honestly don't know because it seemed she seemed so genuine when she said these things. And yet almost immediately it felt like there was an about face in in the way that she did business. I mean, um, you know, people still had to file freedom of information requests. They were still getting delayed. I mean, there was that famous exchange with Brad Edwards and the city water department where, you know, he, he published all the different emails that he had sent to FOIA some information and, oh, we're working on it. We're getting it for you. It's coming. And it was like week after week and month after month. So was I, was I, do you think fooled? Do you think she never meant any of that? Or did something, did some sort of light switch 
uh, switch positions from on to off when she got into office? Well, I mean, if you were fooled, then I was fooled because, you know, during my time in office, I was committeeman. We held events and, you know, uh, forums and had candidates come in. And, you know, I remember uh, seeing constituents sitting on couches with her casually talking in a way that, you know, very few politicians have that kind of ease. And that was part of what, you know, that personality is part of what, you know, gave me hope. And, um, and so she did, you know, she, she played, played that act on us and whether it was the pressures of the job when she got in and realizing how difficult it was going to be to manage the interests of the downtown business community, uh, the, the, the average taxpayer, right. The, the, the real estate lobby, um, you know, just the, the progressive lobby, the affordable housing lobby, right. All of these people come to you and, you know, to a smaller extent, I can relate having been alderman for eight years. Um, and they all want their thing done the way they think it should be done. And the job really requires you to represent as best you can, these varied opinions on what is the right way forward. And I always use the, the, the measure of, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to get as much information as I can. It will not be all of it because you just can't, you know, in the timeframes that you're given, you know, researched everything to its last um, out possible outcome. And, but get as much information, gather as many, in, uh, you know, forms of input as you can, and then make the best decision you can with the resources you have. And, you know, that's on a ward level and it's contentious. Um, you know, my word was very split from day one and remains so today. Uh, and the city, you know, is just that multiplied times a thousand. So, you know, it may have been that, you know, she was used to a way of doing business as a, you know, litigator running a team and really it being a very top down model as opposed to what she promised in terms of a progressive doctrine of inclusion and hearing people's voices and then finding ways to work together and build coalitions. And I just don't think that is, that's what we didn't know about her, that she's just not good at doing that. There was also, I remember talk when she first took office, even among people who eventually became pretty severe critics when I would say something like, well, you know, she said she was going to do this and she's not doing it. And they were like, well, you know, she she's not an experienced politician. You know, she doesn't have the Rolodex that probably Tony Preckwinkle had. You know, she's she's kind of learning on the job as she's trying to do the job. And everybody, um, at least the politicians who I spoke with, like I say, some of whom became pretty severe critics in for a long time. I got so frustrated, John, because everybody kept telling me, well, you know, give her more time, give her more time. Um, so is it a mistake to elect somebody to public office who's never experienced working within the system? Is that our lesson? Well, I hate, I never say never. I mean, I, I just think that, you know, Look, we're we're a we're a we should we all talk about not wanting professional politicians, right? 
mm-hmm. that we want regular people to, to run these things. And then sometimes when regular people get in and they do things that regular people do, we're like, how dare you be a regular person? So I will give <laughs> that, you know, there's a learning curve and, and that has to be accepted in that first hundred days or six months, you know, whatever measure you want to offer. But at some point, you have to govern and you have a four-year term. And I never really saw in her that learning that maybe there were things that she wasn't going to be able to navigate, but that's where your advisors come in. That's where you Mm -hmm. surround yourself with people that can give you that context, that political context or an approach to uh, opening a conversation um, that isn't a slap in the face that it's, you know, you have to find ways to bring people first, you got to bring them to the table and then you have to listen to them. And I don't know if she had the patience to do that. Uh, a lot of the communications we saw, it was very much this top down kind of, I'm the boss, do what I say. And what that does in a culture, whether it's corporate, whether it's, you know, office, political, it doesn't matter. Is it cows people from speaking up even in their defense? It cows people from offering, you know, good ideas because, hey, you know, my job is on the line. If, if, if she mm-hmm. pointed at me, then, you know, I'm looking for a job. And, you know, that's, that's the kind of thing that yeah, I saw a little bit when I was in City Hall, both as aldermen in terms of people <laughs> saying the aldermen's in the room. And I could tell the tone of the room change because the title was there. Mm-hmm. And, and when I was in the, the planning department and me being the guy I am wanting to offer ideas coming from a creative background where that's what we solicit. We solicit new ideas and invite them from, from wherever they can, wherever we can find them to benefit our clients. Um, I would speak up in meetings and I could just feel the room chill, you know, because I'm 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 getting out ahead of maybe what the what the department head is, is speaking about, um, and and you know those are the nuances of human interaction and the what the person who's elected has to do is be able to evolve into that role and make sure that there's people around her that are advising her well that she trusts um, to to make sure the rough edges are are smoothed out before you get to a point where the type of emails and communications that we saw coming from her kind of just put a, a cold, wet blanket over any new idea. And, well, let's, let's, you, let's spend a minute talking about that. Even the people I know who supported her last time around, some of them were a little, were more than a little concerned. Now remember when she first got into the race, I mean, when that race was going on, there were like 14 people and she was an unknown. She was an outsider. And frankly, um, when it comes to political consultants and staff, she wasn't going to get the A team or even the B team and possibly not even the C team who were going to be working on her campaign. Because for much of her campaign, she was considered somebody who didn't have a shot. And what the, the po- politically experienced people I know, even the ones who supported her, were very concerned that it was like once she was elected, and I know at least one person said this to her, yes, we know you're loyal to your staff, 
but you've been elected mayor now. You need to hire the A-team to come work for you and be your aides and everything. And they were concerned because out of a sense of loyalty, she was like, no, this, you know, this may be the D-team, but these are the people who got me elected. And these are the people who are going to be, you know, running things in my administration. And there were a lot of experienced folks that were really shaking their heads about that. And also, you know, if you're inexperienced yourself, you more than any other candidate, you need experienced people around you. Exactly what you're just saying, John. And she either couldn't see it or wouldn't do it. And some people say that that got her whole administration off to a really bad start as well. Yeah. In, in my opinion, I, I think you're you're absolutely right that that there has you have to bring in people outside of just your circle, right? That mm-hmm. have broad experience. Um, but I think in some cases she where she didn't she did bring in some new faces. Like I think Maurice Cox in the planning department, I have a huge amount of respect for him, and I love the direction the department's gone in terms of looking at planning from a very holistic, uh, you know light, if you will, um, but there are many of the heads of, of other departments were daily holdovers that Rom never replaced. And the problem is that so many of those folks that were in those positions were still operating on the old, you know, the old way of doing business. And so, so because she didn't replace those people with maybe people with different experience or newer, newer ways of working you know, in the water department or in the, you know, the streets and sand department, those are really critical areas that, you know, are the, the, the front line of city, city services. And if those people are just like, well, the boss, I got to wait for the boss to tell me to, you know, take one step forward or one step to the left, a lot of stagnation happens there. And so there's, there's, there's two sides to that, you know, that, pull up that experience um, of knowing how things were done, but also making sure you're bringing in enough fresh blood and fresh air to, you know, the city hall, which is a very closed loop in many ways, uh, to make sure that you're doing the reforms, that there's real buy-in to the reforms. And, you know, for example, Invest Southwest was something that I was involved in in its, in its launch. And there was a huge amount of excitement and a really well put together um, launch program where it was, there were, there were meetings, giant meetings in rooms with every head of every department where people were being asked, how can we, what can we do in these areas? What dollars can we bring? What is needed on the ground? We did, we filled vans up with planners and drove around in every area of the city, uh, every, you know, all of this in the Southwest area to, to really get a, a a real look, first-hand look at what the conditions were on the ground, and then figure out what has to be done in the water department, what has to be done in streets and sand and light and whatever. And then what happened is there there were these huge um, events where we brought in the community, we talked about it, we we pumped them up and said, you're going to be involved in this. And then what do we read about now? all of these community members that were so excited in those meetings, I talked to them and they were like, we've never had this kind of welcome into the po- into the process. They know, go back to, it was all, it was all a facade. Hmm. So that's, 
harm that I spoke of earlier is because you set people up for the expectation that things can be different. You win 70% of the vote. You win every single ward. You are a champion of the little guy and the, and the small, the community groups. And then you turn your back on them. Um, and that's the inexplicable part because had she not done that, I think she'd be mayor for another three terms because she would have had that buy-in. She would have had people singing her praises because they had that access, because they were listened to and there was followed through after the fact. And I think that's what was lost after that first year. She got mired in the ego and grievance and who was with her and who wasn't and what they said on Twitter. And we see, we're probably going to talk a little bit about the 45th Ward. Yes, we are. We're worried about that. Aren't really good at what they're elected to do. Yeah. Uh, Let's take that break now and get started on the 45th Ward when former 45th Ward Alderman John Arena and I come right back after this. Podcasts of Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Just search WCPT 820. The Devil's Advocates. For those who would, will flip around and find something, hell, what might be challenged, hear a different idea other than what right-wing uh, talk radio is giving you, there's a huge opportunity for the Devil's Advocates, for progressive talk, whatever, the truth, uh, because everyone... Most people want the truth, and sometimes the truth hurts, but then you get over it. Then it's just normal. The Devil's Advocates, weeknights at 7 on WCPT 820, Chicago's progressive talk. This is WCPT 820, where facts matter. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. We are talking politics with former 45th Ward Alderman John Arena. John lost his reelection bid to former firefighter Jim Gardner, who has uh, in this last term proven to be extremely controversial. He is actually under FBI investigation as well. And it looks like he is going to be in a runoff with Tribune endorsed candidate Megan Mathias. Uh, so tell me what you see in the 45th Ward now, John, both uh, the voters there and politically, because I know there was some redistricting because one of the experts I spoke to said, you know, despite all the controversy, don't count Jim Gardner out because of the way the lines have been drawn. A couple of really conservative areas are now part of the 45th. Tell us about that. Um, yeah, that this this remap, um, you know, he had the ability to uh, draw those lines and map people in and out. He mapped Megan Mathias out. I'm now in the 38th ward uh, by a few blocks. So, you know, he, he took the, the old school approach to um, pick your voters and uh, and carve out your enemies, if you will. Um, I, as, a, as an aside, I think it's always ironic that you know, Megan Mathias doesn't live in the ward now by its boundaries, but there's nothing stopping her from running. So those kind of old ways of doing things are really just performative because um, and petty to me. But, um, you know, what we see is a ward that um, has always been very divided. Uh, clearly, you know, had he done that mapping in a way 
that got him 60% of the vote, we wouldn't even be talking about, you know, a runoff. So clearly, even with a remap that um, did take in areas like Wildwood and further to the north and cut out areas that were more progressive, like down in Independence and Old Irving Park, um, he's still at 49%. So, um, you know, clearly, I think that has a, a lot to do with who he is and how he's acted in the job, how he's weaponized uh, government against his constituents. Um, and people take note of that. Um, and then we, we, if you look at the spread of candidates that were aligned against him, you have everything from um, uh, Tomek, uh, uh, Maria Tomek, I believe is her first name, who is, you know, a relatively conservative, pro-police, um, you know, northwest side uh, resident, longtime resident, um, who got 500 votes. And you have a socialist, you know, full, spec, full left socialist candidate in Anna um, that got 702 votes. So, and then you have Megan Mathias, you have James Suh, um, Susanna Ernst, you know, that are all kind of somewhere in the, in the middle there. And um, I think that's what was needed strategically. Uh, I don't think there was any coordination between campaigns. I think it was individuals uh, that were looking for a better alternative and figured, you know, they have the ability to put their name in and, and make a run at it. But it was it was necessary to offer voters a, enough of a choice um, to, to to get them to come out and vote in this race. Um, it's I think just like in the mayor's race, some voters are confused by having that many choices and they, it kind of freezes them out and they they will tend to say, you know what, I'm going to wait until it's down to two candidates that I can get my head around and decide to make a binary choice. Um, and so that, that's an opportunity that's coming up for the 45th Ward as well as for the city at large uh, in terms of the mayor's race. Um, so I think uh, I am a little bit surprised that he came that close, you know, this, this high 40s number before we see the next, I think there's another 2,300 votes that are out there in the, the mail-in ballots. Um, so it'd be interesting to see where those, uh, you know, put the final numbers. But um, I think getting that close to 40 to 50% is, it has a lot to do with the remap. Um, but he is working against himself in terms of who he is and how he acts. And that's why he's not, uh, wasn't reelected uh, outright this time. Do you think the people who voted for <clears throat> Susanna Ernst and uh, Anna Satoyo and Maria Tomic and James Suh, do you think that they are more likely Megan voters or Jim Gardner voters? Um, I would think I think that the Tomic voters might <clears throat> might be you know more of those conservative voters. Um, the fact that she came in you know uh, you know last in terms of the vote count, and there wasn't a, there wasn't a lot of those conservative folks that were looking you know that were they were going to hold their nose and vote for him even if maybe they didn't like everything about him. Um, but I think those other candidates, um, especially the, the Anna um, voters, uh, the folks that were, you know, uh, supporting Jim Saw and uh, Megan Mathias and Susanna Ernst, they're definitely not voting for Jim Gardner. They're, they're looking for somebody else. Um, so that's where, you know, he's going to have to fight to keep every vote. Um, that'll be a little bit harder now that the race will be focused 
like a laser on him. Um, the messaging will be very clearly about him, and um, voters will be paying attention to that. And I think it's interesting because the the choice in the 45th Ward, um, it, I don't know if it mirrors exactly what we have in in the, the mayor's race, but you you know uh, I was looking at some of the numbers and Dallas won the far northwest side. Um, I think the 45th Ward was you know well north of 50 percent. Um, but you had a lot of you had a lot of uh, you know you had a lot of Brandon voters mixed in there as well. So the question is, um, how do, how much does this mirror that race? And I think um, you know Brandon is, is is a left of center candidate as he's referred to. I think Megan is more of a centrist. So I think she's going to appeal to a lot of those reasonable voters that are looking for a competent you know hand at the, at the tiller and. Um, somebody that they can sit down and talk to and not feel like if they, you know, if they cross, if they're crossed with him, uh, that they're going to feel repercussions because that's yeah. the temperature board right now. It, everybody feels like they're walking on eggshells from businesses to residents that I talk to. Um, even if they, they, they're like, I like him. I like the fact that he's, you know, supports the police and fire and whatever, but I just wish he wasn't so much like that. You know, mm-hmm. kind of the, Trump, the Trump voters who say, well, I like his policies, but I just wish he would stop tweeting. <laughs> you yeah. Know? yeah. So there's a, there's a lot of that dynamic <laughs> that we're going to well, John, I want to get you back on the air with me uh, sometime before the April 4th runoff. And we can one of the things I want to talk to you about is how that 45th Ward campaign evolves. Thanks for being here today, John. I like talking to you a lot. Great. Thanks for having me on. Former 45th Ward Alderman uh, John Arena. We're going to have more when we come right back after this. Take Joan Esposito live, local, and progressive with you on the go by using the TuneIn app on your phone. Just search for WCPT 820. Joan Esposito live, local, and progressive on WCPT Willow Springs is powered by ComEd. See how ComEd is preparing for a clean energy future at ComEd.com slash clean energy. This is Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. You may not have known this with all the politics going on in Chicago, but um, Women's History Month starts today. It is the month of March, and uh, it seems like a pretty good time to have a discussion about gender, as we have just seen the second female mayor of the city of Chicago be limited to one term. And uh, she certainly believes that a lot of that has to do with the fact that she is a woman and that the the deck is stacked a bit against women in in every kind of leadership position. We asked uh, Susan Shapiro Barash to join us. She is an author. She's written at least, what, a dozen books, Susan? <laughs> Uh, my 17th comes out in June. Oh, okay. Almost, uh, okay, a dozen and a half books. She's a gender expert as well as being an author. And uh, she joins us now to talk about what what you have seen and what you have learned as you've gathered the material for all these different books that you have written. So talk to me about where you think women 
are right now. I spoke to Mayor set up. I spoke to Mayor Lori Lightfoot a Friday, and I said, you know, one of the big complaints about you is that you are abrasive. And she said, well, you know, anytime a woman is a strong woman in a leadership position, she is going to be painted with that brush. We still there, Susan? I'm right. I'm listening to you and I'm nodding my head. It's just so <laughs> unfair. The scrutiny that women have to endure and a woman in a powerful place, it's even harsher. I, you know, not to be political, but if we remember Hillary Clinton's campaign for the presidency, we saw how they were, you know, they were writing about her clothes, her neckline. And at the same time, they were writing about her ambition as if it were something negative. And it's just not fair. So how far have we gotten? Not far enough. I think that really, in in truth, until there's equal pay for equal work, there's no parity. And I think that there is such bias against women in our culture that when they achieve, they really end up suffering. And all that they can do is kind of diminished by how they're treated. One of the... Um... I think in California they they passed this that um, companies have to publish the salary range that goes with every position because one of the arguments was you won't be able to pay a woman less doing the same job if she knows what everybody else doing the job is making. Do we need more measures like that? Yeah, but why? Of course we do, but why? Why wouldn't it just be that women are treated fairly? And why do we live and die in such a patriarchal culture that there, it's just always been that women have been treated as the other and that men really haven't wanted women to have enough voice? It's so old a story, and it's really concerning. I mean, why hasn't our country had a female president? Why is it your mayor, you said, is just one, a one-term mayor, and she thinks it's because of her, because she's female? It's very disturbing, and when we look at businesses, how many startups are female-founded, and many of them are simply because the culture has been so unfair to women in corporate America. And so this is an alternative. They're schooled, they're ready, they're capable, and so they're taking this route in order to not put up with the bias that you just described about, you know, the, the salaries. It's, you know, my book club just read uh, Lessons in Chemistry, which is about the struggles of a woman mm-hmm. scientist trying to be taken seriously in the it, 1950s. Right? And then I open the pages of the Saturday Wall Street Journal where they do book reviews. And isn't there a book about women scientists in the 70s and 80s at places like MIT who were given um, were given smaller labs, even when grants that they were given for their work by equipment? They had to wait in line while their male colleagues used the equipment first. <laughs> Is it getting better or isn't it? No, it real. I'm not so certain. You know, years ago, um, the Obama White House did a study on you know how women were doing, and it, there had not been a study as such since the '60s. And I was being interviewed by a lot of press about it, 
And they kept saying, could you explain why I think it was 78 cents on the dollar at that point, you know, for women versus men and other minorities. And they said, could you explain it? And I said, how can I explain it? And I still say that because it's just such a blatant bias. It's unforgivable. And I always hope that women would coalesce in a way, kind of like the second wave of feminism, so that maybe it could finally stop. Maybe if there were enough women together to talk about it. And that brings us back to the second wave of feminism. What really happened there? Well, as much as progress became available to women, you know, chances and opportunity in the workplace, I really feel that there wasn't an anticipation of so much tokenism and sexism. You know, they, we, because of Gloria Steinem, because of those great women, we got, to, we had the opportunity, but never the fairness. It's just, it's extraordinary, really. And, you know, the book, by the way, um, oh, hang on, I just had it here a sec. The book that I'm referencing uh, that was reviewed in the Wall Street Journal is called The Exceptions. It's about a scientist by the name of Nancy Hopkins, who uh, was a scientist at MIT. And it, it, it was interesting reading the review because they excerpted part of the book. It, it wasn't so much that her male colleagues were doing this out of um, a willful, conscious sort of decision to abuse her. It was like they just, it was just second nature to them. It, it, mm-hmm. it, 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 was, a, it, was, a, it was an attitude they did not question. But that's really disturbing, too. No matter what the excuse, being unfair not having par- it's not having parity is wrong and we all know that and you know we think about why it happened and it's from so long ago how women have been treated and there's never been a real click a real switch where someone or enough people in power can say this isn't acceptable and so it keeps on going And, you know, there are women I've interviewed about the workplace who say that they feel that they're even pitted against other women. In in my book, Tripping the Prom Queen, The Truth About Women and Rivalry, I studied women in the workplace, and I've kept that study going. And what they're saying is really discouraging things. Like some women say, I'd rather have a a male boss than a female boss because the the female bosses aren't really mentoring. Well, well, mentoring is always a theory. That's great. There has to be more mentoring. There has to be more women at the top fighting for women who aren't at the top yet. And we aren't inclusive because we live in a culture where it's a limited good series for women. So if we are taught to believe if she gets it, I don't have a chance. Exactly. That's what I've observed. When we see that a woman gets a position of power, rather than mentoring women underneath her, she is she has to view them as a threat. There's only there's only this slice of the pie that's available to women. And I have this slice right now. And if you are elevated, it's not going to come out of the rest of the pie. It is going to come out of my slice. Exactly. And another problem for women is ageism. There's so much ageism 
when it comes to women in our culture, that women are measuring each other. She's 40, I'm 60. Oh, my goodness. I can't let her near my big office because, you know, I worked too hard to get here and I'm afraid that I'll be replaced. So instead of it becoming a team and more and more options for women, we're always worried about who will get what from that one slice, as you say. And this all has to stop so that we can really get ahead. And the mentoring and, the, and, and having mentees is so critical. We have to help our daughters and our neighbors and, and all the females in our society have to help one another in order to really get to where we need to be. I know you've interviewed a lot of women for all the different uh, projects you've written for. Tell me one story, one woman's personal story that was related to you that really illustrates what we're talking about here, if you would. I interviewed a female accountant. She was a partner at the firm, and she was told to take out a young woman who had just gotten her degree and was really quite stellar. And she said because she was 40 years old, and this woman was, say, 25, that she encouraged her to have a glass of wine at lunch and then another, and then reported to her boss that she was concerned that she might drink too much. And what concerned me so much about this story was this woman admitting that she was too worried about her own place to welcome a woman who could have learned from her and thrived at the business and open it and keep opening it up that way. They could have kept it going for more women. This just proves what, when women are tokens, what happens or when they fight so hard to get where they want to be. Now, if we have time for another story, I'll sure. talk about a woman who um, just was had such wonderful female mentors that she ended up getting the job of her dream. And she said she couldn't have done it without those women recommending her for graduate school, one helping her with a scholarship, and that's why her dream be, you know, became a reality. So we have both. We, mm-hmm. we really have an extreme. But, but it isn't just the workplace. I mean, it's in terms of how women feel about men. You know, I interviewed a woman for Tripping the Prom Queen who said that um, her mother and grandmother said, now that you're engaged, do not invite your prettiest friends to the engagement party. Okay, th- this is all wrong. Oh, man. We have, enough con- we have to have enough confidence in ourselves. We can't think that we can't trust our friends and our female colleagues. We can't feel that what we have is so hard-earned that, that someone else would just think it's up for grabs or that it could be threatened. And, Un- and unbelievable. So Yeah, but this is really what goes on. So the Me Too movement was great, although then I heard some rumblings that there was a lot going on about who had the most, you know, to say in that, within that sphere. But in truth, it was very brave. And women have really been subjugated in many areas. And, you know, like even when I read an article, I read something, oh, you probably know this, about a woman newscaster who lost her job. I think it was in Canada because she thought it was because she got her hair go gray. Over, yes, you know, the, over the pandemic. She has yeah. beautiful hair and beautiful. she had been dying it yeah. blonde and she let it go gray. And even though she was wildly popular with the audience and very accomplished at her job, 
uh, she was told that she her she was not getting another contract. And the only thing that had changed in her life was that she had stopped dyeing her hair. Right. It's just chilling because, again, it makes us understand really also how objectified women are and who creates the standard. You know, who, who tells us how we should appear? I mean, how, how dare anyone tell her that? I mean, it was such a disturbing news bulletin because, it, you know, we don't tell the men how to appear, do we? Nor do we think that it would, that such a superficial aspect could really be important. And um, the book that I told you, my book club read, The Lessons in Chemistry by bon- Bonnie Garmus, I actually yeah. heard her speak over the weekend, and she was um, employed most of her life as a copywriter. And they asked her, you know, what was your inspiration for writing this book? And uh, she said, I was at, I had one of my worst days ever. I was at a meeting. I was ignored. I was talked over. And one of my ideas was stolen and presented by a man. And she said, I came home and I wrote the first chapter of Lessons in Chemistry. <laughs> good, good for her. And, and I'm so excited that a woman of a certain age has a book on the bestseller list. Yes. I mean, it's great. It's all great. And this is what has to happen. The, you know, the more that women lead lives they're meant to lead, they're capable of leading, to live and are capable of leading, the, the better off they are. And the more that we put all this really mistreatment to rest. We need to take a break. I am uh, joined by Susan Shapiro-Barash, who's a gender expert and author. We're going to continue our discussion on this, the first day of Women's History Month. We'll be back in a minute. Need a new social media account to follow for progressive politics? WCPT 820 is your best source for both progressive politics and programming. Give us a like on Facebook and a follow on both Twitter and Instagram. You're listening to WCPT 820, because facts matter. Attention, everyone. Don't turn that dial. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive, returns right now on WCPT 820. To mark the first day of Women's History Month, we are talking to Susan Shapiro-Barash, She is a fiction and nonfiction author. She's also served as vice chair of the mentoring committee of the Women's Leadership Board at the JFK School of Government. Um, One of her most recent books, possibly the most recent, she's written so many I get confused, is a book called A Passion for More, Affairs That Make or Break Us. It's a study of women and infidelity. Oh, that's an amazing topic. I don't know how you got people to talk to you about that, but what did you learn? (laughs) Yeah, well, the women were, since you said how they talk about it, they were guaranteed anonymity. These were phone interviews, and they changed their names and identifying characteristics. So, you know, if your name was Gina, you chose another name like that. But this is a 30-year study, and this is the updated and revised edition of what I really consider amazing research because, again, we were talking earlier about female agency and women embarking on affairs. It's really a way of of having voice, of, of saying, look, this is just for me. 
and they are convention-bound women. I interviewed a disparate group in terms of age, race, religion, level of education from all over the country, big cities, rural areas, and everything in between. And the longing for a lover is almost um, something that evolves. I doubt anyone said on the day of their marriage or the day they moved in with a long-standing committed partner, I can't wait to have my first affair, or I wonder when I'll have it. So this is really what happened over the course of these relationships. It's, it's kind of surprising. People tend to think of men as the one who have affairs and women who stay home and are loyal and tend the kids and are shocked and appalled when they discover uh, that they have they've been stepped out on. But m- more women than we think maybe are having affairs. Oh, I would say. And again, you know, this is anecdotal qualitative research. I'm not Pfizer, but. In the aggregate, I've spoken with thousands of women about their extramarital trysts, and I would say 70% of women from the ages of, in their 20s to 80s, in in our society will at some point embark on even an emotional or cyberspace affair or water cooler affair, and they are out and about. Women are in the workplace. We um, have a social media life that lets us get in touch with people. Our cell phones are practically private phones. And in the last three years, the amount of women during the pandemic who had even cyberspace affairs is really shocking. And if you could uh, narrow it down to one simple reason, what would that be? Or is it impossible to do that? Well, according to my study, they have a, women have affairs for four different reasons. There are four different types of affairs that I have followed in my study: empowering affairs, sex-driven affairs, love affairs, and self-esteem affairs. But since you asked, you know, what really would evoke this response, you know, to choose to have an affair, it's really. It, it's really about longing. It's about not getting what they want. It's about holding the bar so high when it comes to men. And, you know, that this one partner would be everything, lover, confidant, best friend, provider, even if you yourself earn a lot of money. Women often want men to be the provider still. So, you know, holding the bar so high with the men and the choices available just create. This is a choice for some women. Getting back to our earlier topic about um, women out in the workforce, I talked about that one law that was passed about um, wage transparency. I I know there are certain states that used to at one point be considering laws that would require a certain amount of diversification of corporate boards you know, a certain number of women, a certain number of people of color, um, that it be mandated that uh, companies have to do this. And I'm not saying it always happens that it's all white males because they're all evil. I mean, I think people have a tendency to hire people and promote people who look like them and um, who reflect, you know, what they what they see in the in the mirror. Do you think laws like that are the answer to break through this? 
Well, we, I think we had talked about that. I, well, it certainly is a way that things can be secretive. And, you know, full disclosure is always better in, in any situation. And it really highlights the fundamental problem that this favoritism or this always allowing or, or choosing men who have had power for so long and aren't so keen on giving it up. And mm-hmm. so, you know, and, and that brings us to another point. I always wonder why, why in industry and why in the world there hasn't been more openness just for everyone, including women, of course, because women are really treated like the largest minority on earth, despite that they're not, that, that they are in the majority. Susan, we need to get you back. We have, I did not allot enough time for this interview. It was a half an hour, but um, we are out of time and there is still so much more to talk about. Susan Shapiro Barash, I hope you will come back and talk to us again. I'd like to, and thank you for having me on. Thank you. Um, That music means my time is up. Driving it home with Patty Vasquez is up next. I will see you tomorrow at 2 o'clock. Santita kicks things off at 6 a.m. Have a great evening. Stay safe, my friends. Good night.